Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 25. I was over half a kilometer from Mather's factory home when I noticed that there were many more people on the streets than before. Some had heavy packs filled with camping or survival gear. Some had ground cars and smaller vehicles. And one was even on a horse. I stood stock still and laughed as it trotted by with ringing clomps, for I'd never seen one in real life. It was huge and brown, and the cold-geared woman riding it bounced up and down with each step in a strange, comfortable fashion. As I rounded the corner, I came upon a checkpoint set up in the street. It was composed of a mix of civilian and military seculars standing behind a makeshift circle of road barriers in a four-way intersection. Two automated guns were also set up here, each one covering half the perimeter. Robots like these were often found around military and detention centers in the Alliance, and these two looked pretty advanced. Such machines were smart, extremely accurate, and, if securely anchored, quite rugged. The simplicity of their appearance belied their lethality. Just oblong metal boxes on heavy gimbaled poles fitted into conical, concrete bases. Sensors and sighting components, ammunition, control circuitry, power sources, and firearm systems were all integrated and protected behind solid polynium casing. Lean and likely very mean, the boxes swiveled slowly back and forth in a random fashion, locking on to every new face or profile for just a quick moment, then moving on when no threat was identified. Civilians and revolutionaries walked through here, and two rumpled figures were being questioned by the soldiers. The moment I stepped into the street, one of the boxes, maybe 30 meters away, picked up my movement and settled on my face. It was startling, and I reflexively stopped short. This must not have been a mundane movement sequence, according to its defensive algorithms, because the thing stayed centered on me. Only two steps from the corner, but it might as well have been a light year. If this robot was programmed to fire upon fleeing suspects, I'd never make it. I'd read about similar semi-autonomous systems and knew that neither stopping short suddenly nor running away were good moves. But I hadn't seen anything like this on planet since arriving and had naturally been surprised. The thing would be analyzing my posture body temperature, visible respiration, possibly my pulse even at this distance, and it was almost certainly gauging my fight-or-flight reaction. Even if it wasn't in aggressive mode, the autogun might still flag me as someone the soldiers should stop and search. Though I doubt I stood there for longer than a couple of seconds, it seemed awkward and furtive even to me. Directly, 
I shuffled forward to the checkpoint and started making retching sounds. This, coupled with my shambling aspect, must have been a disgusting image because the first soldier to spy me as I approached cursed and shook his head. He barked an order I couldn't follow and gestured sharply that I was to pass around the checkpoint and keep walking. I waved to him in acknowledgement, then actually did throw up a little because fake gagging always upsets my stomach for real. The soldier cursed even louder at this and shoved me by. Trippingly, I moved off to the left, my bags shouldered, an old grano bottle of Mathers, filled with water, in my hand. Though everyone watched, no one saw. No one but the robot, which had focused on my erratic behavior despite the soldier clearing me through. Two or three times I cast a glance back over my shoulder, and it maintained a bead on my center mass until I was down the block and out of sight again. Where could these third-world jokers have possibly gotten weaponry like that? Suddenly, the commissioner's AIM conspiracy theory didn't seem so far-fetched. The revolution was printing plastic rifles and handing them out to teenagers, yet they had access to high-end defensive robots? Such equipment had to be in limited supply. That would earmark them for high-priority missions, yet they were sitting in roadblocks. Maybe the checkpoint was a net for catching elites trying to sneak out of the city. That did seem to be important to these guys, but there would have had to be several such throughout town to be effective. Maybe, too, the auto guns were supposed to maintain order, since, as Mathers had predicted, there were many more civilians than I'd seen before just walking around. At one point, I passed under the elevated tram line, and several of the cars went by overhead jam-packed with people. Delay Maharn's stated address was a few blocks away, in the more affluent part of town. There weren't any factories belching noxious fumes on this block, though there was a large machine shop. This had a clear, blast-resistant door in front that was shattered anyway, and a quick mob dashed in and out, looting tools and bars of metal stock, as well as what looked like emergency rations of all sorts in large cartons, which was a little weird. All this looting was within three blocks of that checkpoint, loaded with armed guards and robots, and this wasn't an isolated case. Doors into private residences and tiny boutiques alike had been jimmied and were now wide open. At least 200 people ran hither and thither, happily burdened by luxury. Grano, laughter, and quickly snatched items of nearly all descriptions floated around me like ghosts of the recent past. There were even several armed soldiers in the mix, weapons shouldered, excitement in their eyes and valuables in their arms, no different than the rest. At one point, several cold-geared figures dragged a battered and bloodied man out of an apartment building and threw him to the curb. Unlike the naked young buck from G's favorite cat house, this was an older guy, kind of fat and dressed in pajamas. He struggled in the dirty slush to get to his bare feet, as if to salvage a crumb of dignity even in this circumstance. A young fellow who just happened to be passing by casually kicked him in the head, and the man just slumped back down. 
everyone standing around this dangerous enemy elite was laughing, from the group that had pulled him from his slumber out into this waking nightmare to several looters nearby who'd stopped to enjoy the show. Maybe this guy was known and hated in the neighborhood. Maybe he wasn't. The kick was too hard for entertainment's sake, though, because he was out cold now. One of his captors just shook her head in disgust and fired five or six shots with her plastic weapon into the man's fat back. He jerked with each impact, but didn't otherwise react. Except to die, of course. I kept walking. My appearance, much like the more desperate members of this frenetic mob of thieves and murderers, of these ordinary people, now empowered and drunk with the thought of long overdue justice. I was invisible. I was one of them, and grateful to be such, just as that dead guy in the street would have been had he been. How anyone could be caught napping now was a mystery, but people make big mistakes sometimes, and that would be his last. As I glanced at a grimy-looking family of five, laboring under the weight of an expensive sofa, slipping and laughing in the late afternoon ice and sludge, I allowed myself a moment of pure venom for this frozen, bloody, hateful planet. I savored an active dislike and distrust for all such wells, nicely terraformed or not, sparsely settled or not, peaceful and quiet or not. They were each a hell, and in those few seconds of self-indulgence, of well-earned petulance, I hated the vast majority of the human species simply because it lived in them. My map showed that I'd come to Maharn's apartment at last, so I did what I could to shake off the mood. It was a chic little apartment building, maybe five stories tall. According to the commissioner's information packet, her home was or had been on the third floor. Like everything else in the neighborhood, it had seen the wrath of the common man. The windows facing the street were all broken or shot out, and the door at ground level was hanging open. Nice as the place had probably been, it seemed a little odd that a woman of such importance in the government lived here, instead of on some palatial estate out in the burbs the way her peers did. This could have been merely one of several abodes, therefore, but it was the only address I had. A small but pretty lobby met me as I stepped inside, even now still mostly untouched, though snow and trash had blown in. A couple of scruffy guys clomped down some stairs off to the right, large bags of loot in both hands. They spoke to me as they passed by as if I was an old friend, and I waved back. The elevator seemed to be functional because I could hear it moving when I pressed the button. I thought to save myself a climb, but it never came. I could hear people on the other floors as I walked up, and what sounded like an argument or a boisterous joke being told in a male voice on the fourth or fifth floor landing above me. The third floor was quiet, though. Likely, it had already been picked clean, but I stepped in cautiously anyway. There appeared to be only five apartments up here, and the doors to each had been kicked in. Trash, old clothes, and unidentifiable broken things littered the hallway. I saw big stains in the shag carpeting through one open door, 
but no bodies, thankfully. The address I was following led to the door on the end. This apartment overlooked the street. I self-debated the merits of assembling my rifle and having it ready, but most of the people in the streets carrying away booty seemed unarmed. Having no weapon in sight had saved me at the checkpoint. Well, that and the vomit. So it felt logical to proceed in the same way. Still in all, I kept my hand on the weapon's grip in the bag. The hallway's desolate character, coupled with the apparent distance now of the loud guys above, produced in me an unsettled feeling, like someone was waiting in ambush. The phantoms were only that, as it turned out. The apartment in question was just as quiet and unoccupied as all the rest, and just as picked over. I wouldn't go so far as to say that everything of value was now missing, but certainly everything easily portable was. Smashed glass and plastic objects were all over the place, and some real charmer had defecated right in the middle of the living room. Anything that could survive a three-story fall had gone out that way, no doubt, and into the hands of excited and liquored-up cohorts in the street. A look out the window showed the process in action across the way, as a large chest of drawers was being lowered down from the fourth floor of an identical building by rope. This represented a degree of organization that was a cut above the random mob. Maybe local gangs or black marketeers? At least business was booming for someone. There were a few media units still on the walls, but they were small, flat things and very common, designed for personal vids or still images. One was folded over, with a big crease in the middle, having been better anchored than someone expected when they tried to tear it off the wall. It still worked, though, cycling through various warm pastoral scenes, from a world that was definitely not this one. I looked for some sort of hidden safe behind the things, or a box or something that might have had some kind of clue about the woman who had, at least occasionally, made her home here. Considering that she'd hobnobbed with the rich and powerful, and, at least ostensibly, had been one of them herself, I figured there was an outside chance she might have secreted, well, something. But if so, it had either been carried off by the looters or by the owner herself sometime before. The bedroom was in a similar state as the rest of the place. Another broken media unit was in here on the wall, but the screen was only partially cracked. Clear images of snowy fields and mountains cycling every few seconds. I stood there for several minutes, watching the highlights of a strange woman's life parade by without ever seeing a repeat. These were all beautiful shots of Barlow. I recognized a few of the sites from tourist brochures I'd studied on the way in. A huge frozen harbor somewhere far from finery. A spectacular waterfall in the mountains, likewise frozen, and glinting a rainbow in the bright morning sun. A crowd of colorfully dressed Bastono participants flowing down a mountainside like a river. There were, in fact, a lot of still images and short, silent vid clips from good times up in the mountains. Several slid by from what appeared to be a single vacation. Most of these were of Maharn, and they were slick and smooth, 
indicating a small floating camera, probably a pocket-sized thing with integrated fans, which were popular with professionals and tourists alike. In several, she posed with a particular man, maybe in his sixties. The two of them usually stood atop a forested hill, snow all around, and a precious little valley below. Sometimes a large cabin could be seen in the background, complete with chimney and smoke. It looked almost like a ski lodge, though there were no skiers in view, nor anyone else but these two. It took four or five images and vid clips to cycle past before I finally recognized the man. Commissioner Vernays had called him General Bacon, leader of death squads, now dead. So that was the kind of company she kept. Based on the shining faces they bore in the images on this broken screen, they'd been a bit of an item, proving that even villains can have a romantic side. On a whim, I touched my wrist comp and queried the media device. It offered an unlocked interface, along with copy and download options, which meant nothing here was incriminating, nor even likely relevant. It would take time to study anyway, just to be sure. A boring, ordinary job I frankly look forward to at this stage. An incoming call from Mathers flashed into my retinals just then. Your friends are on the move, he said without preamble and on voice only. There was a quick and dirty firefight at the Damo farm not less than an hour ago. It isn't on the Revnets yet, but a unit of the Blues dashed over to a storage facility out there and surprised a small contingent that failed to identify itself. You'll be shocked to learn your little news crew is armed and dangerous. Assuming that was them, sounded like them based on the description. How'd it turn out? Any whispers? Just one. A soldier on the ground, not content to wait for full disclosure from the new regime. Small and his team retreated. Got caught with their pants completely down, it seems, but they got away clean for all that. The revolution's glorious victors, I think that's what they're calling themselves today, consider this a serious win, though I don't know why just yet. And Small is in the wind? That's good. That's very good. We aim to please the other replied. By the way, you were right about them having advanced equipment. Somebody who owes me a favor or three, and who's a pretty fair hand at that stuff, says he can't even put a dent in their encryption. The contact info they gave your ship appears valid, but it's been locked on their end. Something in Mather's voice made this seem more than just hopeless. My own video was on, so I knew he could see me, and I opened my hand in a questioning manner. He pressed on with humorous excitement. A funny thing. The advanced tech they're using is actually a little too advanced for several of the private radio nets. Some of the simpler ones can't do AV. We're talking hobbyist-level stuff with apartment or groyich coverage at most. In these circumstances... Com rolls back to text format as a default, bypassing encryption. For a few microseconds, it flips into peer-to-peer -peer mode, and a connection occurs automatically. I can write him a note? So they tell me. A small text message. It can get proliferated planet-wide in just a few minutes. The moment your newsies are detected, it'll send. 
There are more of these tiny networks out there than you'd imagine, so they'll walk into range of one soon enough. Compose something right now, and I'll get it moving. You have the nets abuzz, my friend. The rumors doth fly. So many nosy parkers, I swear. People these days, I agreed, his playfulness filling me with encouragement. I called up a basic text editor with my wrist comp, set it to gesture input, and watched the words form in my retinal display as I wrote. Just my contact number and a short note mentioning Small by name. I sent it off to the disfigured man masked by the blank video feed, and he, in turn, passed it on to his equally hidden cronies. With your passengers running for cover, he pronounced, sounding for all the world like a hunter on the chase, I expect you'll hear something soon. Stay safe. And he cut the call. I had nothing but time to kill at this point, so I sat on the heavy bed frame, the mattress had been carried off, and went over Maharn's images one by one. There were hundreds of them, and as I scrolled through each, they portrayed a very attractive woman, maybe in her forties, raven-haired, red-cheeked in the cold, and clearly in love. At least some of her free time seemed to be spent in a small town or hamlet, also somewhere in the mountains. It was a quiet little community, far away from the ugly sprawl of factories and discontent. There were also a few shots from inside the ski lodge. It revealed itself as a large home with modern appliances, rather than a country lodge or inn, and it bore an overall look of rustic comfort. Amusingly, General Bacon liked to lounge around in an ugly flannel bathrobe when not out frolicking with his lady love, or out killing people. These were scenes of domesticity, vacations, retreats, and stolen weekends. Two people, well past their youth, engaged in important, often violent work for the dictatorial regime of a border world. Yet they seemed so happy here. Not carefree, really, for their eyes and bearing were guarded even in the midst of relaxation, but seemingly content with these moments and each other. If that monster of a man could find love upon this cold planet, and with someone high up who'd have likely known of his dark deeds, it spoke volumes about the woman herself. Mathers called back after nearly an hour as I sat there resting and studying those mysterious lives. The message was delivered and opened three minutes ago, he told me. Good luck. Thanks. You'll hear from me. Always a pleasure. He left again, yet I wasn't exactly alone, as a text chat popped onto my device's display not less than five seconds later. Identify yourself. Not yet, I dictated aloud, my jawbone pickups conveying the words to the wrist comp, which typed it out and responded for me. What do you want? A meeting. Why? You help me, I help you. Your yacht is lost, but I can get you out. Nothing for nearly two minutes, during which time the boisterous guys from the floor above came down to this one, sweeping through the apartments. They popped their shaggy, drunken heads in. They waved and grinned. 
then moved on when they spied nothing of value. By this point, with no response, I thought I should lie a little. I know where it is. Long pause. Where what is? This time, I let him do the waiting. I could almost hear his mind turning it all over through the simple text interface and across the unknown number of kilometers that separated us. Where and when? Finery, Freedom Square, Southeast Corner, four hours. Make it six. And he dropped off the chat. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.